your lectures and our own faculty. But Dr. Ringer, as I think everybody knows, uh, is a MD-PhD, Associate Professor of Pediatrics here at the Geisel School of Medicine and Chief of Neonatology and Perinatal Medicine at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He received his medical and PhD degrees from Case Western Reserve with residency in pediatrics at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, also in Cleveland. I won't say the years. Um, Although it was on the it was on the flyer, so you can all see, you can all see. Fellowship was in neonatal and perinatal medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Brigham Women's Hospital, and Boston Children's at Harvard, where he launched and uh, had the majority of his career leading the. Um, uh, nursery newborn medicine services at Brigham Women's Hospital until we were able to recruit him here uh, just in 2015 as our section chief. We know from his prior presentations even in the past three months of his leadership in NRP and in the world of neonatology, but somehow he also was able with all of that work to fit in a, a medical ethics fellowship at Harvard Medical School 10 years ago. So uh, without further ado, well, welcome back to this podium, Dr. Steve Ringer. Well, it's uh, really exciting to be here to talk about uh, one of the many uh, cumbersome or uh, uh, fr uh, stressful issues in neonatology. And um, it really focuses around uh, critical issues in ethical decision making, um, and thus the title, uh, What Could Be Worse Than Death? And um, Maybe Some Things Are. Uh, I, I have no conflicts. Uh, uh, I mentioned the fact that I've been uh, co-chair of the steering committee because some of the um, uh, information in the NRP textbook and the work of ILCOR has focused around decision-making at the edge of viability. And uh, although Keith was kind enough not to mention the years, I've been a neonatologist for 30 years, so um, this is an issue that uh, has always been with us in one way, shape, or form. Um, so I thought uh, what I'd like to do this morning is define uh, the periviable range uh, of gestational age, think about the ethical framework and the difficulties in particular in perinatal ethics, um, uh, engage you in thinking about what the factors are in making decisions, particularly for extremely premature infants, and highlight the fact that this really is a struggle for caregivers as manifested by some information uh, looking at uh, what really can be an enormous variability in the approach to these questions. And then at the uh, end, sort of think about when is it ethically defensible to limit care, uh, particularly in the extremely preterm infant, which raises the question uh, uh, of what is futility, a word uh, that's often used to express where people think care is going. Um, and um, as um, many of my colleagues, I have been fond of saying the most futile thing about futility is trying to define what futility is. Um, and then when is it ethically defensible to mandate the provision of care for a patient uh, over, over the object, objections of the patient's surrogate, and then um, talk about what 
more or less, uh, we do here. Uh, I put in these two cases, one uh, prime MIP presenting at just over 22 weeks who um, is going to have a baby. And uh, the baby is a male and estimated to weigh 450 grams. And you meet with the mother and discuss the care of her infant. And she requests that your team attend the birth and provide full resuscitative measures for the baby. Um, you could think about what do you say, what do you do. And then, of course, you don't have a lot of time to think about that because you get called for another consult down the hall where a multiparous woman presents at just over 24 weeks of gestation and she's going to have a baby as well. Uh, after meeting with you, she requests that the infant, a female, uh, who's estimated to weigh 560 grams, be kept comfortable after birth and that no resuscitative measures be offered. What would you do in that case? Uh, these are, I think, uh, questions that sort of frame a lot of uh, the issue. Uh, but I thought, you know, one of my favorite stories in neonatology focuses around my decision to choose it as a career. So um, when I was a medical student, I anguished over which specialty to go into and had sort of come down to pediatrics and internal medicine and then uh, made the decision to choose pediatrics. I uh, returned home from Cleveland to the Boston area uh, where I went to see my grandmother and I said to her, um, you know, I've chosen pediatrics. And um, my grandmother, uh, who was born in 1901, <clears throat> and had a very short and specific list of what specialties qualified as a real doctor. Uh, and pediatrics wasn't on it. And, uh, and her comment to me was, so you're going to tell the mother when the baby can eat peaches? <laughs> So I sort of tucked my, you know, arguing with my grandmother was talk about futile endeavors. Um, so I, um, I tucked my tail between my legs, went back to Cleveland. And then uh, as I approached the end of my residency and had decided on neonatology, I, I was again in Boston talking to my grandmother and I told her that I had chosen neonatology, and I figured that has to impress her because, you know, and I said to her, you know, we take care of the sickest of babies, and at the time, you know, some babies weighing less than two pounds, you know, come under our care, expecting her to, to say, you know, wow, that's really great. Uh, instead, her response was, eh, in 1909, my cousin was born, and she weighed less than two pounds, and we decided, we, the family, decided to take care of her by putting her in a shoebox lined with cotton and keeping her on top of the stove and feeding her with an eyedropper. And uh, at the time I was uh, discussing this with my grandmother, she pointed out, and now she has 15 great-grandchildren <laughs> and, and subsequently uh, died at age 91 after a rather full life. So it makes you think, like, that was a baby who almost certainly would have been said to have no positive prognosis, uh, and yet 
for whatever reason, uh, they kept her alive and she thrived. Okay, uh, a, few bi- a few bits of definitions for us. What's ethics? What's Sabbath? What is futility? What is periviable? And uh, a really central question in perinatal ethics, if you will agree that patients do have autonomy, who in perinatal medicine is or are the patient? So this is the definition from Miriam Webster, uh, that uh, it's a discipline uh, dealing with what is good and bad with moral duty and obligations, or a set of moral principles. And this is a great definition, um, particularly if you live in an ivory tower, um, because it's great to say it, but it's harder to know what does this mean at sort of street level. So for, and I would say nowhere is closer to street level than in the trenches of neonatal intensive care. And, And I think in the clinical arena, we think of ethics simply as making the best attempt to do the right thing, right? Obviously, that engenders more discussion about what is the right thing and how do you reach that conclusion. But one of the most important starting points is that good ethics begins with good facts, okay? Now, here's, here's what uh, Webster says about futility. I love the fact that Futility is the quality or state of being futile. Like, uh, Webster probably was a radiologist. No. Uh, um, so we have a sort of sense of what futility is, right? But really, it's very hard to define. Um, but we tend to think of it clinically as, as close to impossible as it can possibly be. You know, if in your discussion with a patient, you've made a pronouncement and the only thing separating you from 100% is that little line in tiny type at the bottom of your consultation that says, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future, or whatever the banks say, you know, that's that's when you're talking about futility. But the problem is, you can see, everybody can define that a little bit differently. How close to 100% do you have to be? Is it 99.9% or is it 95%? And if you differ in your opinion, on what basis are you differing, right? Um, You could decide that in truth, as humans, we can never be absolutely, totally sure of any clinical result, but At the same time, particularly for us as caregivers, but for families and patients as well, we can't be paralyzed with indecision, in part because the lack of a decision is a decision in itself. So we have to make use of our best estimates of outcomes, even when attempting to uh, define futility. Okay? Now, let's go to something easier, right? What do we mean by periviable? Okay? Generally, this is a term that's applied to newborns born near the limit of viability whose outcomes range from certain or near certain death to likely survival with a high likelihood of serious morbidities. And you'll notice all those asterisks, and you say, what are those there for? And um, 
because they all sound like things we really know. Um, but I would uh, suggest that, nope, we don't really know any of them. And in fact, most of those words are fairly vague, right? But people have struggled with this. And in 2013, uh, a bunch of experts from a number of professional societies got together to sort of work out the details of periviability and uh, examine an approach to care. And in that workshop, they, they embraced the, the definition of the gestational age period ranging from 20.0 weeks, which of course we know exactly, <laughs> to 25.6 weeks. Um, and by the way, in the nomenclature that I like to use, the, the decimal point doesn't, isn't really a decimal point. It's, it's a um, number of days. You know, it's, it's appropriate as we approach the opening day. Uh, it's a baseball terminology, right, that you say 3.2 innings. Right, because next Monday is the the fourth of the holy days of obligation in Red Sox, in Red Sox Nation. Um, okay. Well, well, let's talk about ethics. Certainly, we, we have an, an easy framework to deal with that. So we, we think about ethical decision-making in terms, first of all, of autonomy, the patient's own right to decide what's best for them. But we recognize that it's hard to get an answer from a neonate, and we typically cede that decision-making power, that uh, 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 expression of autonomy to the baby's parents, because we generally view them as the most appropriate surrogates who, uh, who we trust to be operating, in general, in the infant's best interest. Um, we, we look for our care to have benefit. We think about beneficence. Is there a benefit or a help from the therapy? So this is entwined with the idea of futility. If a therapy has no benefit, it's hard to justify using it. Um, and linked to beneficence as sort of a subpart or separate part of it is, is the concept of non-malevolence, primum non nocere first do no harm. But of course, we recognize that all of our care includes some harm to the patient. It's really a balance of good versus harm uh, at an acceptable uh, level. And then uh, we, of course, want to ensure that um, the principles of justice are upheld and that every patient we deal with gets treated the same. But Again, in the neonate, much more complicated, I think. Autonomy really doesn't um, exist because we can't ask the baby what they want. And even if we could ask them, they don't have the life experience um, to perhaps offer a good uh, decision about what they want. And therefore, we accept surrogates. Right away, you can imagine the possibility for conflicts, mother versus father, parents versus caregivers, etc. Uh, and then, uh, as I've already sort of alluded to, non-maleficence is a, is a relative concept at best. There's always a burden of care, right? Every time 
if you decide that a patient with meningitis needs antibiotics, you know, you say, oh, this is clearly a good thing for them, but it does require putting an IV into them, which has pain and, and uh, uh, aggravation associated with it at a minimum. Uh, perhaps you rather quickly reach the ethical decision that in that equation, the antibiotics outweigh the, the negatives of the IV, but it's an ethical decision all the same. Um, and, I got, and, I, and I think uh, thinking about beneficence and defining benefit is probably the biggest struggle of all. Is it just survival? Is that good enough? Is it normal survival? Whatever that is. Uh, and, or is it something else? So, um, so that's what makes this uh, an interesting and uh, engaging thing to think about. Uh, so uh, how else might we sort of look at these issues? Well, almost never is the decision between support of life uh, or uh, uh, limiting care to comfort only a binary decision. There are costs and benefits to all of the choices you make, right? If a patient dies, even after a short time, whatever support you've given them has some costs in terms of pain and family anguish. If a patient survives with severe disabilities, the cost to that patient uh, and perhaps their family is lifelong. Um, and, um, and none of us would want to let a patient die who m might have minimal or no sequelae, but it's really hard to tell who is who. Okay, so good ethics depends on good facts. Let's see if we can find some facts. So survival at 20, between 22 and 23 weeks can in fact be accomplished and can be improved if perinatal interventions are undertaken. In Japan in particular, uh, there have been widespread reports of intact survival in babies born at 22 weeks. That's roughly comparable to their results at 23 weeks with an overall survival rate uh, of 33%. In the United States, the survival at these gestational ages uh, over the past 15 years is possible, but in general, the rates are much lower. Uh, certainly, survival increases with each uh, completed week of gestation. Uh, and at least at the present time, uh, we think the data supports the concept that survival below 20 week, 22 weeks is essentially unprecedented. So this is that uh, workshop that I alluded to before, uh, an examination of periviable birth. And this, uh, uh, in this workshop, they took a, a broad look at the evidence, uh, although uh, not in the same rigorous manner that might be applied to uh, uh, other evidence reviews like ILCOR or the Cochrane reviews, but they were aiming for a consensus. So, Again, the way I view this is this was really an important workshop that was really looking at, okay, it's nice to talk about the ivory tower, but we gotta do, you know, we're at the bedside, we've gotta do something. So they looked in particular at births less than 26 weeks, up to 25.6 weeks, the, what their defined range of 
periviability. <laughs> and um, although these are a small percentage of births overall, they account for about 40% of infant deaths and the overwhelming majority of neonatal deaths. But survival, at least, uh, is possible. Uh, with the NICHD network reporting in the 1990s, survival rates of 6% at 22 weeks, ranging up to 72% at 25 weeks. So you're thinking, where's my futility line? Um, and this is a somewhat difficult to read slide that just reflects on the fact that multiple reports have looked at different cohorts of patients, again reporting variable but non-zero rates of survival at 22 to 23 weeks, and, and trying to determine what factors are associated with them. Um, uh, such factors as the uh, infant sex, their weight, whether they're a singleton, whether they uh, received uh, the benefit of antenatal steroids, um, as well as what did people do for them and uh, in terms of uh, instituting life-sustaining uh, uh, interventions at birth, uh, and what were the protocols for withholding or withdrawing intensive care. Uh, this is a, um, a sort of compilation of some, some of those studies looking at survival uh, with gestational age. And you can see that um, in uh, these three studies uh, published in uh, the first decade or so of this century, uh, the survival at, the, there's rough agreement that uh, survival at 22 weeks, while unlikely, is non-zero, hovering around that 6 to 8% and then increasing in a roughly linear fashion to 50, 60, or even 70 uh, plus percent at um, uh, 25 weeks completed. So you could say, that's what we're aiming for. If we keep the baby alive, that's the right thing to do. And I think there are certainly people who would take that position. Um, I think a, a deeper and more reflective view uh, really focuses on the fact that survival itself is only a small part of the question. Um, and uh, even if you, uh, if you provide care but the infant dies regardless, you, you've run the risk of exposing that infant to some pain uh, or discomfort during that process but in general, particularly in tiny preemies, the, the time course is short, so the relative risks of that uh, pain are low. It's, we, I think, can make a strong argument that what really matters more for um, uh, thinking about decision-making is not just survival, but how babies turn out and what is their long-term neurodevelopmental and medical outcome. Uh, and um, recognizing that the impact of a similar medical outcome may be quite variable depending on the infant's family status, socioeconomic status, where they live, what the access to care is, et cetera. So this is the, this is the data on, on severe or moderate disability. And again, you can see that 
Um, if you look at moderate to severe uh, disability in this red line, uh, it's extremely high, uh, approaching um, 100% uh, at 22 weeks completed, and decreasing progressively with each week of completed gestational age to a level of about 45 or 50% at 25 weeks. Uh, among the infants with severe disabilities, and this is again a compilation of several different reports, much less difference, particularly when you consider the, the error bars in the data, uh, hard to argue that the incidence of severe neurodevelopmental impairment is dramatically different at 25 weeks completed from 22 weeks completed. Okay, and, the, and this shows the numbers from, um, from one uh, review that yes, there's a progressive drop in the rate of moderate to severe neurodevelopmental uh, impairment as gestation increases, but essentially no difference in the most severe neurodevelopmental impairment. Um, perhaps the degree of neurodevelopmental impairment where you might conclude that a life with that degree of disability was in fact worse than death. Uh, and uh, there was just a paper uh, in the New England Journal about a, uh, a month ago looking at, um, has, you know, has the data from the 1990s become old? Um, and um, again, uh, it's lovely to borrow slides directly from the, oh. It's all, it's all the neonatologists. <laughs> the code beepers are working. Um, which I found out of it about one o'clock in the morning, too. <laughs> um, uh, very nicely, the New England Journal will prepare slides for you, but in my experience, they're almost all impossible to read. But, but um, uh, uh, what they looked at is three different um, time periods, looking at whether or not there had been improvement over basically uh, the period from 2000 up to 2013. And, um, and this is just a comparison of, so these were sick, premature infants below 25 weeks of gestation. And, um, and this one's a little bit easier to look at. When they looked at all infants over these three time epochs uh, that you can see at the top, uh, two, 2000 to 2000, Three, 2004 to 2007, and 2008 to 2011. Um, overall, no change in uh, survival or overall neurodevelopmental outcome. Probably some diminution in uh, the rates of uh, death in, uh, um, in infants born uh, at 22 to 23 weeks, um, but no real change in the risk of neurodevelopmental impairment. So the data that we have seems to reliably indicate that uh, the situation has remained roughly the same with 
a high risk of mortality that may now be decreasing somewhat, but the overall risk of impairment in survivors are remaining about the same and high. Okay, and um, uh, this uh, just shows uh, this data, uh, I think, in a little bit uh, clearer function, looking at different types of uh, neurodevelopmental impairment. And I show this just to remind you that while we sometimes euphemize it by talking about severe neurodevelopmental impairment or profound neurodevelopmental impairment, we are in fact talking about very severe disabilities, loss of hearing, loss of vision, inability to walk, so the most severe end of the scale. Okay. So, um, so the questions still are there at 22 to 23 weeks. So, so you might say, wow, that's good. So if we just know the gestational age, we're in good shape. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this point, but um, uh, as I've already alluded to, it's hard to really know what the gestational age is. Um, many women have unclear dates or they present late enough in pregnancy that the typical tools used for estimating their gestational age have wide um, confidence intervals. Ultrasound dating at 22 to 27 weeks is said to have an accuracy of 10 to 14 days. So that means that the 22.2 week gestation infant evaluated at around that gestational age might in fact be a 20.2 or a 24.2. Substantial differences if you look at uh, those curves for survival and outcome. Uh, estimation of fetal weight, a little bit uh, better, or perhaps in many instances a lot better, but still uh, widely variable. Um, and again, if it's plus or minus 14%, that's 70 grams in a 500 gram infant, which is an enormously variable uh, weight range. Okay, so, so our data is limited. We don't know our accurate gestational age. We we, most of the data we have, in fact, I would say all of the data we have, focuses on completed weeks of gestation and sort of pretends that there's no difference between being exactly 23 weeks and being 23 weeks and six days, but one could conclude that almost certainly there's some difference, albeit a difficult one to actually define. Um, most importantly, we don't know the birth weight um, accurately before birth, and again, fetal weights can be inaccurate, okay? so. What tools do we have to predict the outcome? Uh, wouldn't that be a helpful thing? Well, gestational age is very limited in its ability alone uh, to um, tell us what's going on, and most of the predictive data uh, or tools that we have are based on data that's only uh, uh, available after the baby is born. So thinking about making decisions when an anticipated birth at the periviable gestational age is, is happening is very difficult. 
We rely a lot on data from the NICHD estimator, which was um, a, a tool developed from a large study in the NICHD network uh, that determined that, um, uh, that the factors that had the greatest determinant uh, in predicting overall outcome were whether the baby was a boy or a girl, whether they had been uh, exposed to antenatal corticosteroids, whether they were a singleton or part of a multiple gestation, and, and uh, their birth weight as well as their gestational age. And taking all of those things together gives us a better estimate of what we might expect for the outcome. Of course, every case is unique. Um, and often in these cases, there are important other factors. The mother's age, her health, her nutrition, whether she uh, uses illegal substances, the impact of genetics, whether there are infections or preeclampsia, et cetera, all of which are likely to affect outcome but couldn't be included in the model because they're really individual on a case-by-case. And uh, this, this slide is just a compilation of all the differences that can occur between cases. So let's go back to how we make the ethical decision. What are we going to say to those two moms on labor and delivery, one of whom says, do everything for my baby at 22 weeks, and another one who says, I think uh, this is too risky at 24 and a half weeks. I'd prefer that you do nothing but keep the baby comfortable uh, after birth. Okay, so we've talked about the dilemma of, of determining the patient's own autonomy uh, or autonomous wishes and uh, at least alluded to uh, the difficulties that could be present um, in allowing the patient, parents to make that decision. I mean, Although we believe that in general parents are thinking about the best interests of their infant, we recognize that um, there's a different relationship between a parent and a child which uh, can uh, uh, factor into your decision-making process. And certainly if you have a family and you have other children, the impact of one child's outcome on the family as a whole is likely to be present in the minds of parents and impossible, really, for them to separate out from the best interests of that patient alone. Uh, uh, how much, uh, how, you can see that survival is possible and even some intact survival is possible. Where's your line for what is uh, an acceptable uh, level of outcome. Does it have to be 100% or 0% depending on how you're looking at it? And then what about uh, the costs of care? Uh, anyone who spent any amount of time in a neonatal intensive care unit knows that lots of painful or aggravating things are happening to patients on a, a daily basis. Isn't there some estimate that the typical baby in the NICU has 750 painful uh, events during their stay, and that's on average. So, although we 
struggle to use good facts to support our good ethics, it's hard to find those facts. Okay. In addition, I think uh, there is the complicating factor of who actually is the patient, right? What, what is the impact of your decisions about medical care of the fetus and the newborn on the mother, who's obviously integrally involved, right? Um, there are maternal risks to delaying delivery when the membranes are ruptured, um, or if there's preeclampsia. Uh, what about the risks of C-section at the time and later on in terms of the mother's reproductive health and ultimate health across her uh, life? Um, and how do we um, uh, balance the risks of waiting to deliver versus the risks to the mother, et cetera, versus the benefit to the baby? So, hard to do. Many people over the years have said, you know what we'll do? We'll wait and see what the baby looks like. And that'll tell us. And it turns out not very helpful. <laughs> I, I won't elaborate on it further. Okay. So, so people struggle. Okay. And then, it's interesting to see what they do about it. So this is an interesting paper that came out a couple or three years ago looking at variation in treatment and outcomes of extremely preterm infants between hospitals. And again, this was uh, through the NICHD network, and it really looked at um, whether or not uh, people made the decision to initiate or forego resuscitation, whether they advocated for active intervention and when, um, and they found an enormous amount of variability after 22 weeks of gestation. Uh, they looked at infants in the network born between 2006 and 2011. These were all babies born at less than 27 weeks who weighed more than 400 grams um, if they were less than 22 weeks gestation by estimate. Otherwise, there was no weight limit on the babies. They did exclude babies with uh, overt syndromes or malformations, and uh, they included in their definition of active treatment such things as surfactant therapy, ventilator support, parenteral nutrition, whether the babies were given epinephrine or chest compressions uh, in the delivery room, and then they looked at uh, survival and neurodevelopmental impairment at, at uh, 18 to 22 to 24 uh, months of gestation. So about 5,000 babies at 24 hospitals, of whom 87% received active treatment. The infants who did not receive active support were more likely to be growth restricted or to have low one-minute APGARs, less likely to have been exposed to antenatal steroids, and less likely to have been delivered um, operatively. And um, they found that amongst these hospitals, 22% of the hospitals engaged in active support at 22 weeks, 72% at 23 weeks, and then up to nearly universal uh, offering of uh, intensive support at 24 and 25 weeks. Um, 
another slide that doesn't um, project very well, but what, what, what you could, could see, if you could see this, was uh, <laughs> that um, the outcomes uh, vary tremendously based on whether active uh, treatment was given. And um, boy, they look so good on the um, computer, the desktop screen. Um, but when they looked at infants born at 22 to 23 weeks gestation, the rate of active treatment in the particular hospital accounted for the majority of variation uh, in outcome. In other words, it was people's attitude about whether or not this was the right thing to do or worth doing, whatever phrase you want to apply to it. But if the hospital said, you know, we're going to actively go for these babies, the, the outcomes were dramatically improved if you had just assumed that the babies, uh, that the likelihood of a good outcome was in fact futile, it was likely that that was the way things were going to turn out. But enormous variation amongst these level three uh, academic medical centers, so institutions that on the surface of it appeared similar to one another. Okay? By the time you get to 24 weeks and, and there was almost no effect and uh, essentially gone at 25 uh, to uh, 26 weeks. So, even though the best obstetric estimates of gestational age have a, uh, have a margin of error of at least five days and perhaps greater depending on when it's done, uh, the uh, willingness to embark on active treatment increased at the ends of the week. So again, people treated 22 and 5 or 22 and 6 as dramatically different from 22 and 0. Um, but most of the differences in outcome were whether or not active treatment was embarked upon and really whether or not people, it appears from the data, whether or not the caregivers and or the parents thought that this was worth it. So. Um, so, as people struggle with these decisions, they decide to do things differently across the United States. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, study that came out of uh, Montreal, uh, where they, they created the following questionnaire. They posed to a group of medical people, ranging from students all the way up to senior physicians, a number of patients of different ages, starting with the 24-week preterm at the top and ranging down to the 80-year-old uh, at the bottom, and two years, five years, 25 years, 50 years. And what they did was create a scenario where they said that the survival was 50%, the same for all of these patients, and the rate of normal outcome among survivors was essentially the same and they, um, the risk of major disability was the same. So looking at outcomes, the same percentages for a 24-weeker as for a 5-year-old, a 50-year-old, or an 80-year-old. And what they said, what they asked people was, is it in the patient's best interest 
to be resuscitated and transferred to intensive care? And would you accept a family's wishes not to resuscitate uh, if they so chose? And um, what they found in, uh, was that there, were, there was a dramatic difference based on age. So if you looked at the respondents who, who decided that resuscitation was always or generally in the patient's best interest, uh, there was a high percentage of those, um, uh, and then said, um, would you withhold care at the family's request at, in, for the 24-week premature infant, I think about 59% of people said, yeah, I would withhold it. However, but they had much, much lower rates, 10 to 15% at the higher gestational ages, and then rising again in the case of the 80-year-old. So, uh, and then uh, even, if, even amongst the group that was sure that resuscitation was in the patient's best interest, much more leeway in the premature infant and in the 80-year-old than um, uh, in the other age ranges. So again, here it's what do you think the best interests are in the gray, and uh, would you accede to the family's wishes to withhold resuscitation? Relatively low percentages, so high rates of, gee, it's in the patient's best interest to resuscitate them across the age range. Again, based on the same data, lower for the premature infant and lower for the 80-year-old, but strikingly, no matter what you thought about the, uh, whether this was in the patient's best interest, the willingness of caregivers to say, well, if the family doesn't want to do it, we won't do it. Okay, so I think this study sort of poignantly points out that people think about premature infants differently. And it, it's, there's, we don't know why. Is it because the risks are greater because you're worried about a whole life of disability rather than a few years of disability? Is it because people are frightened of premature infants? Hard to know. But without a doubt, people see these babies differently. Okay, what do we do? Well, we often start in our discussion with using the NICHD estimator. So this is what it looks like on the internet. You are about to talk to that woman in room one who's at 22 weeks and her, her baby weighs 450 grams, I guess has become a female by this point in the talk, uh, but is a singleton and uh, hasn't been able to get corticosteroids. And you ask the estimator, what's likely, what are the estimates for what will happen to this baby, right? So the likelihood of survival 3% or perhaps 12% among mechanically ventilated infants. But most, uh, but, but high rates or very low rates of survival without profound neurodevelopmental impairment, right? So nearly universal death and high rates of survival without profound impairment. Um, but even as you look at these bleak looking numbers, you could say, well, Although they're bleak, if you don't die and you survive, then the two out of three 
will have moderate to severe um, uh, neurodevelopmental impairment, and one out of three will have profound neurodevelopmental impairment. So depending on what you think is an acceptable place, what is worse than death, you might say, well, you know, yes, very bleak, but only a third have profound neurodevelopmental impairment. Or, wow, a third have profound neurodevelopmental impairment. By 24 weeks, where the baby is a little bit bigger um, uh, and has gotten some steroids, uh, the numbers really change dramatically in their overall form, much higher likelihood of survival, 72% versus 3%, um, but still a 28% risk of mortality. And um, among the survivors, uh, still 18% with profound neurodevelopmental impairment. So a, a smaller number, but in the larger sense of things, I, I think you can argue probably not too different from the risk um, in survivors of nerve developmental impairment at 22 weeks. And then by 25 weeks, um, the baby, I guess, has not grown, um, but uh, her likelihood of survival is higher, but, but still with some uh, significant, albeit smaller, risk of profound neurodevelopmental impairment. So, where does this leave us? The, the possibility of a good outcome exists at gestational ages as low as 22 weeks. But at least based on the available data that we have, the likelihood uh, between 22 and 23 weeks remains extremely small um, uh, of survival and still with high rates of nearly universal neurodevelopmental impairment um, with about a third of it being severe. Um, so the risks of doing harm are high. There's the risk of painful care with an early demise. There's the risk of long periods of intensive care with ultimate severe neurodevelopmental impairment. So difficult to make a determination of what is good in any particular case. Uh, and, so, and so in general, our approach sort of has settled in the following way. Below 22 weeks, uh, we think the data supports the, the contention that survival and any reasonable outcome are essentially impossible. And therefore, resuscitation at that gestational age, below 22 weeks, is not recommended because it is as close to futile or futile uh, as it can be. Um, and then above 25 weeks, the rate of survival is high and the outcomes are much better. Still risks, but uh, the, the, the balance strongly favors uh, initiating intensive support. So in those cases, resuscitation would be offered unless there were other intervening medical issues. So, when is it ethically defensible to withhold care? Certainly below 22 weeks. When is it ethically defensible to, if you will, mandate care? Uh, uh, the data supports doing that above 25 weeks. And we think of the region between 22 and 25 weeks 
as remaining in the gray area where decisions need to be made by the team caring for the infant, meaning all of the medical caregivers and the infant surrogates, usually their parents. Um, and optimal decision making um, it really is best done by having the whole team present, um, including the neonatology people, the parents, the obstetricians, uh, so that there's clarity in the decision making. And um, I was commenting on this uh, before starting, avoiding euphemisms, making it clear when you're talking about severe neurodevelopmental impairment, what exactly you're talking about, so that patients and families are best prepared to participate in this team approach to decision making. Um, and um, I think that's roughly where we stand at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So questions, comments, challenges? Um, first, I want to thank um, our co-sponsors um, for the Pediatric Bioethics Day, so not only Chad and the Department of Pediatrics, but we co-sponsor this with Anya Donovan, who's the director of the Dartmouth uh, Ethics Institute at the college, as well as with Tim Leahy, who's the chair of the Clinical Ethics Committee at, at the hospital. So I really do appreciate the support from our colleagues in ethics to support a day of pediatric bioethics, which includes both this Grand Rounds, as well as resident education and extra learning opportunities for our trainees. So I really do appreciate that. Um, one question that I had for you is that we were talking about this a little bit at dinner, but you were at the opposite end of the table, um, is that traditional ethics models are, um, may ignore a huge part of, uh, about pediatrics and neonatal medicine in particular, which is that interconnectedness, that web of interconnectedness and dependency that is necessary for a child. So I look at your two cases, and even then you still frame it as the parents making a decision for an individual child. But that child grows up with such a sense of dependency with siblings, family, community. You know, what if the multiparous family lived in Berlin, New Hampshire with three other children ages two to six? How does that influence the care decision? And how does that influence you as a neonatologist guiding the decision making for a family? Well, um, so uh, thanks. And some, some of the problem may be my inability to fully articulate it. Uh, like in those cases, the parents offered their initial point of view. But I think, first of all, uh, it's never, it should never be a question of, okay, here's the facts. What do you want us to do for your baby, right? So it, the parents are participants in this decision, but this has to be a team effort that includes us as the caregivers who have the medical expertise and the parents who can bring to bear exactly the types of questions that you're raising. Now, having said that, uh, to some extent, uh, it, it becomes a very sticky uh, situation, right? Because you, you would nowhere, nowhere else in medicine would you base decisions for a patient on what the impact might be on some other people, right? Certainly you can argue in the process of birth and, um, and roots of birth and things like that, you need to consider the impact on the mother 
herself at that time. But, but the questions of how it impacts the family, I, I, I prefer to think of that as that's why you're engaged, what, you, what you're asking for the parents to make a determination of is how does a decision to offer care or withhold intensive care um, fit with your life view? I know that that life view is influenced by what they're thinking about with the rest of their children. Um, but, uh, but, but it immediately becomes an extraordinarily difficult one, right? Like, like you know, if you, if you burden the family with a child with extensive needs, you, you run the risk, at least in the abstract, of, if you will, ruining the lives of three healthy children. Well, you wouldn't want to do that. On the other hand, you wouldn't want to withhold reasonable care from this baby because of the presence of their siblings. And, and I think that gets into the issue of, of, of justice. So I'm hemming and hawing, but I, think, um, but I think the way I would come down on it is I, I have to listen to those issues and try to tease out what is the impact on the family as a whole from what the impact is on the child. You know, I, ultimately, I don't, I don't think you as the caregiver can completely do that, in part because I don't think the parents can completely do that. So I don't know if that was at all a good answer, but, it, <laughs> but it's a very difficult situation. Difficult yeah. But I would err, I mean, I think you have to err on focusing on the patient, your patient, but recognizing that who your patient is and what their life is like is in fact exactly determined by how they're going to grow up. And, and um, uh, in fact, I think the data in somewhat older preemies says whatever happens in the NICU becomes of less and less importance as they get older, and it all has to do with who their parents are, do they see their parents, what the parental education is, et cetera. So, so you could argue that perhaps that's an even stronger indicator. So that clock is late, so or slow. But can I have this reflect that your question probably helps explain why so many of our pediatric ethics speakers have been neonatologists because of their struggle with the multiple dimensions that you highlight. And so I'll just ask this to thank Dr. Ringer and bring your question down. Your son, your son, you're <laughs>